is for Mrs. Bert White, a labor of love. For in addition to five children of her own, she and her husband have made a home for 55 unwanted youngsters. Shoes reveal the age range from four months to 14 years. Once homeless and unloved, the tots are cared for with affection and understanding by the Whites, a kindly Bowmanville, Ontario farm couple. It's a voluntary undertaking built on faith, which calls for some mighty providing and caring, too. The whites just can't turn a homeless child from their door or their hearts. And as news of their kindness keeps spreading, their family keeps growing. Although they receive little financial aid, the whites say their reward is in seeing the children healthy and happy, and in remembering the words of Christ. Suffer the little children to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. You ever wish that life had an easier setting? You know what I mean? Like if you could just open up a menu like you do on a computer and just adjust the difficulty a little bit, just tone down the difficulty a little bit. You ever have those days, weeks, seasons? If we just make this a little bit easier, that would be great. Uh, I remember as a kid playing video games, and also last week, but anyway, as a kid playing video games, um, there are certain games that when, when you start them, it'll open up with a degree of difficulty menu, and it'll ask you what level you want to play on, easy, medium, or hard. And so no one has like hard. No one's going to play on hard. If people are in the room, you might choose medium, because you don't want people to know that you wouldn't play on anything less than medium. Uh, if no one's around, I would always choose easy. And uh, it was great. It's going to be easy. It's going to be really fun. Some games would indirectly make fun of you for choosing one of the easier levels. They wouldn't just call it easy, medium, or hard, but they would call it like casual, normal, and expert, right? So if you're playing on less than normal, what does that say about you? You're just some kind of casual. Um, historically, some games were a little more forward with their mockery. One of the first and greatest computer games of all time was Wolfenstein 3D. Its difficulty screen said this. I believe we have a picture of it. Uh, can I play, Daddy? was the easy setting, and he has a soother in his mouth. Uh, Don't hurt me was the next level, and then bring him on, and then I am death incarnate. And of course, I was 12 year old, and we were at the height of like our insecure years as boys, and so we were always like, oh yeah, we are death incarnate, and we would play for like three minutes and be like, we are not remotely death incarnate. And we would tone it down to the next level, and then the next level, and, uh, and you know, who, you, no one wanted to play with the baby-faced guy, but eventually that's what we'd end up doing. You just wanted to make the game a little easier. And sometimes, I think we all have those moments where we're like, if I could just make life a little easier. If I could just operate this on a, a bit of an easier setting, that would be great. And so we actually tend to live our lives this way. We actually tend to make decisions that are going to be more comfortable, more convenient. We like to choose to do the things that are, that are not going to be as stressful, as dangerous, as strenuous, as painful. We avoid those things. And we usually kind of choose the path of least resistance. And that makes sense. This is pretty much what we all do. This is how culture lives. Um, and it's not even just in like the deep things of life, but even in some of the more practical day-to-day -day things. Do I want to peel potatoes and roast a pork in dirty 14 dishes, or do we want takeout? <laughs> We're going to go on the easy setting for this one. Do I want to get up off of the couch and go to the gym and work out and hurt my body? and then I have to have a shower and then drive all the way back home? Or do I stay on this couch and watch four more episodes on Netflix? 
And eventually Netflix will ask you, are you still there? And you are. You are still there. Right? Our, our culture operates in such a way that comfort is the goal, that what's easy is the goal, these are the things I'm going to do, and, and, and we actually, in a lot of ways, the things that has pushed our world forward technologically has been people trying to figure out, how do I make this easier? How do I make this faster? How do I make this better? It doesn't always mean it's better, but how do I make it faster? A microwave is faster. Very rarely is it better, right? But it was our pursuit of what was easier and quicker and more convenient that got us there. And you know, how did you send letters a few hundred years ago? You would have to dip a feather in ink and write on a parchment and hand it to a guy who owned a horse. Four months later, the recipient would get your letter, right? Eventually we got to a point where you're putting stamps on an envelope and putting it in a mailbox and hoping that a plane would fly it somewhere. And eventually we got to email where you can kind of sign into your account and send a message to someone who's got to sign into their account. And, and, and now we just have devices in our hand where you can just message people. And it's instant. You can video talk with people instantly. And, and we just get them and we read them. Some of you have not broken into your settings yet. And I'll know when you have received my message because it will say red. <laughs> you can't lie about it at that point. So it's instant, right? We've come a long way from the horses and feather pens. And it's always in our pursuit of what's, what's easier, what's more comfortable. Well, how can we make this faster? But what... What if the easy way isn't always the right way? What if some of the best things in life are also some of the hardest things? What if in our pursuit of what is always easier, with the less risk, the less pain, what if we're actually missing out on a lot of the blessings that God would have for us? We've talked about some of those things over the last few weeks. Uh, marriage is one of them. Marriage is not easy. That is why there is a man in a suit on your wedding day who says, before you sign those papers, do you mean this? Will you say your vows for better or for worse, right? It's kind of a heads up. It's not easy, but it's an unbelievable blessing. It's a gift. It's the same thing with having kids. We talked about that recently. There's nothing easy about having kids. You just checked off the I am death incarnate box when you had children. <laughs> that is what you signed up for, whether you wanted to or not. And it is heartbreaking and challenging and unbelievably exhausting. And it is an incredible gift and a huge blessing. What, what if some of the hardest things in life are the best? In our pursuit of always wanting to do what's easy and comfortable, we would miss out on some of these things. Hard things aren't always bad things. And sometimes God calls us to do some of these difficult, more challenging things because he knows that there is a blessing and a gift in there for us. To take it a step further, if you're here and a follower of Christ, then you have decided to sign up for some hard things. I mean, that's what it meant when you took on Christ as your identity and, de and decided that this is how I'm going to live from this day forward. With that came incredible blessings. Love and joy and peace and patience, the spirit of God and all of these blessings and these promises, there is nothing else like it. And yet when you took on Christ, you also took on a life that is not just about your life anymore. It's not just about what you want. It's not just what's about easy and comfortable, but you signed up for something completely different. It's not about the pursuit of what's easy and convenient. Jesus told us this. This is what he says in Luke 9. It says, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. 
But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. You have to give up your own way. You have to give up your life. It says, take up your cross. Well, the cross is an, an instrument of death, and it represents sacrifice. That's what it means when you decided to follow Jesus. Peter learned this. He learned this often the hard way. First Peter 4.2, he says, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. He said, living a life for Christ is not one where you're, no, you're kind of pursuing your own thing anymore. It's not about your dreams. It's about God's will. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Sacrifice. He, he's not saying that living a life for Jesus is going to require some sacrifices. He's saying it is a life of sacrifice. You are giving of yourself as a living sacrifice. I had a professor at Bible college always remind me that the problem with a living sacrifice is that they tend to crawl off the altar. That's what we want to do. We want to go back to the casual setting. We want to go back into easy mode. We want to tone it down a little bit because this is, he's asking quite a bit here. Those are pretty hard passages. And uh, it's not necessarily the easy way out, but God said it is unbelievably blessed. And there is promise, and there is joy, and there is power, and there is purpose, and there is hope. We signed up to do life with Christ on the hard setting. So some of you might be thinking, okay, that's good. Why are you reminding, of, reminding us of this in a family series? Because um, I want to take the next few minutes to talk about what I think is a very biblical idea pertaining to families, and it gets avoided a lot because of the difficulty level. And today I want to talk about adoption and fostering, and I want you to know this is not intended to be a self-serving sermon. This is not one of those things where, oh, Mark just wants to get on his soapbox and talk about what he wants to talk about because this is what he does. Uh, this is a biblical issue found in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end that I believe is part of the calling that God has on his church. He called his church to take care of the marginalized, the poor, the needy, and the broken. And chances are, if you find a kid who is in need of a family, they have lived a life that has left them to some degree needy and poor and broken. And there have been people in their lives that have made poor decisions, or there have been unfortunate circumstances that have brought them to this point. And Christ says, this is who my church is supposed to take care of. This is what I am calling my church to do. And so you go back to the Old Testament. God was laying the groundwork of the law to his people. And uh, he, he introduced the covenant that they were to live by, and he writes this in Deuteronomy 10, 17. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality, cannot be bribed, and he ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. Right? He, he builds that up pretty big, doesn't he? I'm the God of gods. I'm the Lord of lords. There's none like me, and so this is what I mean by that. Orphans and widows are going to be taken care of. It's an interesting kind of trail of thought. It says, He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing, so you too must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. So he tells them, We will be a people who are going to take care of those who are marginalized, down and out, poor, and in need. That is what we are going to look like. And, uh, you know, that was 
a pretty significant event back then. If you were an orphan or a widow in need, there was no Department of Social Development in 1400 BC. No one was looking out for these people. In fact, it, it was a culture and it was a time when they were disposable. If you were weak, uh, the, there wasn't much they could do, especially if you were a nomadic people like God's people often were or any of those tribal people often were. If you were going to be a drag on resources but you really couldn't pull your own weight, your time with that group was limited. And history tells us that it was often the weakest and the neediest that were left behind. And God says, we will not be like that. This is not who my people will be, but we will take care of them. We will do the hard work. And, and, and he specifically mentions food and clothing and love, some very practical things that they would have needed back then. And this is not just an obscure law that God kind of said in one verse in Deuteronomy, but it is all through Scripture. The psalmists wrote about this very fre frequently. Psalm 72.4 says, Help him to defend the poor to rescue the children of the needy and to crush their oppressors. And, and so he's using action words here. He's saying defend and rescue. These, these are words that require people to do work, to do challenging things, to give of themselves, to make sacrifices. A few Psalms later, Psalm 82.3, it says, Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. You see those words come up over and over again. Give and uphold and rescue and deliver. It was demanding. It was work. It was a challenge. But it was the call of all of God's people. It was important and beautiful and dignifying and godly. It's a verse we used at the end of our justice series a couple months ago. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, and fight for the rights of widows. Are you starting to get the impression that this matters to God? This matters to him. It mattered to his people. It was a call that was on his church. It was a call that was on his family. I mean, we could go on for quite a while. We're not even to Jesus yet. We're not even halfway through the Old Testament yet. And we just handpicked a few. I mean, the Bible is full of verses kind of admonishing this idea of reach out and do whatever you can to protect and serve and love and rescue those who are in need. And so the bottom line was that being in God's family was a huge privilege and unbelievable blessing, and yet with that came some pretty significant challenges. It is not a casual setting, and it was physical, and it was emotional, and it was spiritual. This is how God's family operated for thousands of years. And you make it into the New Testament and, and, and it goes on, and, and one of the most well-known verses on this topic is found in the book of James. And if you've read the book of James, you will know he does not beat around the bush in talking about faith being something that you don't just declare with your mouth, but it is a way that you live with your actions. And he writes this in chapter 127. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. It says pure and genuine religion. When Jesus was alive and ministering, what he preached on was often the, the opposite. He would, he would preach on corrupt religion. This is what corrupt religion looks like. This is what empty, selfish religion looks like. And, and he was usually aiming that at the Pharisees and at some of the ways that they enforced the law and the way of living. Something had gotten lost in translation between Deuteronomy and the Gospels. 
where God said, this is my people, this is how we act, and this is what we do, and it got distorted and twisted along the way so that the church was no longer upholding their part of that deal. And the orphans and widows and the foreigners were being left behind and discarded and secondary to what God's people were concerned about. And so Jesus kind of reinstated this whole idea, and James is reminding us of that. It is a reminder that usually when we see things that are broken and messy and needy, we walk away. And God said, when you see what is broken and messy and painful, I want you to walk into it. Following Jesus is an invitation to walk into what hurts and to do what he is asking us to do. To love and to care, to nurture, to provide. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus was adopted. He didn't have an earthly father. Joseph married Mary, and they raised that child together. Jesus didn't just experience adoption theologically, but he lived it with his life. And, and actually, adoption language is used throughout Scripture to kind of express that this is what the gospel looks like. The most frequent comparison to the gospel in the Bible is either adoption or marriage. Those are the two metaphors that he uses the most. Ephesians 1.4 it says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to him through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God's plan was for us to always be adopted into his family. He said, this was planned before the world began. Talk about planning ahead. I struggle when I wake up to know what's for supper that night. God's like, before there was a world and before there was anyone on this world, this is my plan for when I do all of those things. Like, th this is what his goal was from day one. So adoption is usually something we think of as a reactive measure. Something happened, a circumstances arise, a situation that needs it, and, and it's not with God. This was God's plan A. This was his plan from the very beginning. And I love verse 5. It says, and this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him pleasure. Right? As if to just kind of reinforce, like, this wasn't out of necessity. That This wasn't just out of like a, oh, I guess I'll have to do this. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. Adoption is an idea that he wanted, he created, he pulled it off, and it makes him happy. Seems like it should be pretty important to us then, right? We have been adopted by the God of the universe. We are his children, the Bible says. And, and so think about all the benefits that come uh, with, with kids who have an awesome dad. I remind my kids all the time, here are reasons why it's great to have an awesome dad. It's laminated, it hangs on our wall, it's wonderful. It is not. But you think about all of the incredible things that came along with being adopted into God's family. The blessings and the benefits that we get from him, the protection and the provision, the power that we get. I didn't mean to make all of these P words, but it's, it's pastoral. <laughs> but we have someone who comforts us, who loves us, who watches over us, he guides us, he cares for us, he lovingly disciplines us, he puts us back on the right track, he takes care of us emotionally, spiritually, mentally. It is good to have a good dad. And not only that, we have a dad who added us to his will. And he's got some good stuff. And he says, you will be heirs to my will. Meaning that whatever he has, we have. God's greatest and best is ours, he says. He says, my glory. He says, you are heirs to my glory. Romans 8, 15. 
It says, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So we get to call him Abba Father, which is the most kind of tender, intimate, loving relationship between the kids and their dad. Uh, but it says we get to share in his glory. His glory. That's what everyone was after in the Old Testament. Right? They, they, I want to see a picture of God in his glory. God, I want to see you in your glory. And what did God say about that? If you see my glory, you die. He, he let one guy catch a quick glimpse of his glory and his face glowed for like three months after the fact. It was crazy. And he says, you're my, you're my kids now, and so you get that. Everything I have, my promises, my power, this future, eternal life, all of the significance while you're here, it's ours. We were adopted into his family. It was his plan from day one. So what does that mean? It means that adoption today still looks like the gospel. Adoption is still a picture of the gospel for our world. We were orphans. Spiritually, the Bible says that we were lost, we were broken, we didn't have a future, we didn't have a hope, we, we didn't have a home. And when God adopted us into his family, he gave us all of those things. He gave us a home. He, he gave us a future. He gave us everything that we needed out of his sheer generosity and grace and his goodness. It's three more G words. I don't mean to do this, but it's just... This is who God is. There might be no greater expression of the Christian faith than extending faith and hope and love to children who do not have a family to take care of them. That is the gospel. That is a picture of what Christ has done for us. It is a beautiful expression of the gospel. The early church in the first century became known for this. They became known for this movement that, that took care of the vulnerable and the needy. No one else was doing that. It, it, no one else had the time or the resources or the effort or, or even the desire. Like, why, why would you do that? And, and they became known for it. And, and it grew into an adoption movement that led to the institution of orphanages, that, that led to, the, here's how convents worked and monasteries. was if, if you had a kid that you didn't want or couldn't take care of or that you found, which was common back then, then you would take it to the church. People just knew the church would take care of them. The church would watch over them. The church would take them in. It was an incredible picture. Today, some of the most influential organizations that take care of the vulnerable and the needy are still Christian-based. This has been God's call on his people since day one. This has been his plan from the very beginning. And I believe that the church should still be leading the way for taking care of the fatherless, the motherless, the orphan, the widow. This is our calling. Psalm 68.5 it says, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. I love this line. God places the lonely in families. Isn't that good? He sets prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. God places the lonely in families. That's what he does. He means it spiritually and physically. It's what he's done for us, and now it's what we can do for others. And sometimes that looks like a permanent solution with adoption. Sometimes that looks like a temporary solution with fostering. But at the end of the day, what it really looks like is the gospel. It looks like the gospel for a world who needs to see a picture of the gospel. 
The problem is that the need usually far outweighs the resources, which means there are way more kids who need help than there are people currently helping. And so there's something wrong with that. And the question is why, and the answer is, it's hard. You do that, that's hard. We're back to our difficulty setting. Oh, I want to live a life that gives me the most comfort. I want to give a life, live a life that I avoid pain. I want to avoid stress. I want to avoid difficult things. And the gospel is very much, as we've already discovered, an invitation to walk into difficult things, to walk into painful things, and to do the hard work that is necessary. We are called to sacrifice, to lay our lives down. It is a harder way, but it's a better way. It's a blessed way. And so my question for us today is, what lengths are you willing to go for the gospel? You ever thought about that? What lengths am I willing to go for the gospel? What thing that if God were to ask me to do it, I would go, nope, that's about my limit. Is there anything? What hard things are you willing to do for Jesus? Because here's the thing, you can't say yes to everything. But we also can't say no to everything. We can't say no to everything. Now, I understand this is a pretty specific calling, and it is not remotely my goal today to hopefully have all of you think, oh, I guess Mark's want me to, to adopt and foster kids or else I'm a terrible person. Not remotely my goal. Some of you should not. Many people should not. Don't do it. We are not all called to the same thing. But we are called to something. And when that something is this emphasized in Scripture, when that something is this obvious and tangible and practical in the pages of the Bible from beginning to end, don't you think we're called to do something about it? So it's not for all people, but what if it's for more people? What if it's for more people? So a few thoughts on this when it comes to kind of the practical application of fostering and adoption. Uh, first is this, one of the most common things I hear when, when we tell people that we foster is, oh, wow, good for you. We could never do that. So many times. Oh, that's great. Good for you guys. We could never do that. We, we could never do that. Never. I hear that word all the time. The Beebs wrote a song about you should never say that. It's not good. And so I always want to ask people, what part about never is it that you're incapable of doing? Is it the part where you have to house children in your home and keep them alive? Because you've been doing that for a long time. Is it the part where you prepare meals and feed it to children for their sustenance every day? Because you also have done that for a long time. Is it the transporting child from location A to location B to help them accomplish their daily goals? You also do that all the time. Is it showing love and grace and compassion to the people that live with you? Because you do that all the time. So what part of never are you incapable of doing? You've got what it takes. Oh, but we could never do that. I think we give ourselves way too little credit. And I think we are much stronger than we think we are. And we are much more capable than we think we are, especially when we remember that the same power who raised Christ from the dead lives in us. So for you to say about anything that God calls you to do, oh, I could never do that, what are you really saying about the same power that raised Christ from the dead? Because I believe that the scripture tells us that we can do all things through Christ that gives us the strength. So here's what I would say. Don't discount yourself too quickly. And this doesn't just go for fostering and adoption. This goes for, for any of the hard things that God will ask you to do. Don't discount yourself too quickly. 
Don't assume that you are incapable. Don't assume that you can't pull it off. What if, instead of saying, I could never, the church started to ask, what if I did? What if you just replaced, I could never, with what if I did? What if I did? What kind of impact could I have on a child's life? What kind of impact could I have on a family and their extended family and beyond? What, what if you dared replace, I could never, with what if I did? And you were surprised at what God taught you. Here's what I've discovered about people who say, oh, I could never, about this, 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 or this. Oftentimes, uh, they will end up facing something that they have no control over, that that one point in their life, they said, oh, I could never do this. And it turns out, they could. And it's often being faced with something and having to go through with it that you discover that God will give you the ability to do it. What if I did? Secondly, and perhaps this is not for you, this is not fostering adoption, might not be for you, the next best question you can ask is, what can I do? What can I do? If this isn't what I'm called to, what can I do? So there are plenty of practical things that you can do to come alongside families uh, that are doing this right now. And again, I hesitate to say any of them as it might seem self-serving, but I'm going to say it anyway, and you can use it for everyone else in your life. Uh, we talked about this last week with parenting. It takes a village, right? Hugely important. So I'll speak into what's been valuable for us along the way. People who make meals are my favorite people in the world. I've also talked about this. Uh, when, when we took on our little guy, he was a baby, and so meals showed up for a week or two, and uh, hugely appreciated. Food is always hugely appreciated. Even if it's me alone in my office in the middle of the afternoon, food is hugely appreciated. So some of you aren't called to fostering or adoption, but you can cook. That's almost the next best thing. <laughs> and so you could do that. Meals go such a long way, so practical. The next thing you might be able to do for a family like this is to babysit, is to watch their kids, to give them a night out, give them a night off, give them a rest, give them a break. Uh, there, there is actually a way that you can sign up to become what is called a respite care family, meaning that you don't foster kids, but you actually kind of watch them on evenings or weekends so that foster families can have a night out. So you might be thinking, well, I couldn't do it for six months or six weeks, but could you do it for six hours? Because it could go a long way. And it could be a huge benefit to somebody. Uh, you can pray, which sometimes just seems like the cliche spiritual answer, but I will tell you that you can feel it and you know it, and sometimes it's all you've got to hold on to, and it goes a tremendously long way. You can talk to these families, specifically ask what things it is that they are in prayer for, what things they want prayer about. You can send them encouragement and kind words and scripture. Let them know that you're praying God's word over their kids. It is unbelievable. You should do that. In fact, you can do that for families in your church that aren't adopting or fostering, and it will go an incredibly long way. We should be praying for one another. In fact, it goes back to this Deuteronomy verse that we just read. The three things that, that God brought up was food and clothing and love. doesn't get more practical than that. So what can you do? Those are three pretty good things. Just watch out for one another and pray for one another and do what you can in a practical way. Another great way you can help out is by partnering uh, with a bunch of these incredible Christian organizations that allow you to sponsor and adopt children uh, in a different way. Uh, we, we have Compassion with us this weekend, as you've already seen, and uh, I, I love Compassion and will vouch for them at every opportunity, and I do regularly. Uh, I had the opportunity to go on a trip with them uh, to one of their projects in the Dominican. This is the other side of the Dominican that you don't see pictures of, and unbelievable. 
when you sponsor a child, you are literally changing that child's life. And I am not being paid to say this at all right now, but the, everything in their life changes dramatically from, from their health, to their diet, to their exercise, to their education, to their family. I have been in their homes. I have met their families. I have seen the letters that they keep from their sponsors and they cherish them as their treasured possessions. It is unbelievable. And they are very Jesus-centered, which I love. Your money actually works. You're not sending it into a huge bucket that an organization is gonna use for this, that, or the other thing. It goes to these kids. Our family would have 10 more Compassion Kids today if we could afford it. So what can you do? You might be able to do that. And there's some kids in the lobby on a table that you might be able to adopt as your own. It's an incredible opportunity. So maybe that's you. Maybe that's what you can do. I know there's lots of things vying for your money but there's very few things that you could argue would be more important than that. Uh, I could go on. Scripture is clear that this matters to God. All of this matters to God. So vividly, um, it's an expectation on his church. It's something that he calls us to do. It's something that we're capable of doing. It's something that he empowers us, us to do. It's, it's not the same thing. We're not all called to the same thing, but we're called to something. So what is that something for you? This is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what he's done for us. And now we get to express that in the same way. Church, we are not called to the path of least resistance. Our call to live for Jesus Christ was a call to up the difficulty setting a little bit, to walk into some hurt, to walk into some pain, to live our lives as a sacrifice, to give ourselves back. We just sang a song that said, if more of you means less of me, take everything. Did you sing it? Did you know what you were singing? He must become greater and greater. I must become less. What a beautiful picture of the gospel to be able to do that for someone else that needs it so desperately. And so I would encourage you to pray about that. Think about that. Help out where you can. Do what you're capable of. What lengths are you willing to go for the gospel?